continuing to work our way through the book of Exodus uh, this morning, and I want to invite you. Got a chatty crowd. I want to invite you to give your attention to the reading of God's Word from Exodus chapter 14. Our reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pihahirath in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea and on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, 
watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you and we ask that you would send your spirit to tend to your word that it might reach our hearts. And Lord, whether uh, we are coming believing uh, or we're confused or we're not sure what we believe, uh, we pray that this morning you would reveal your glory to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to do a little recap of the story so far, and uh, in order to recap this story, we actually have to go back to the book of Genesis, because Exodus is vitally connected to the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, Joseph, who's one of the sons of Jacob, is done dirty by his brothers, and they sell him into slavery, uh, where he's in a desperate situation, uh, but in that situation, he rises from prisoner to prime minister in Egypt, and he ends up saving all the Egyptians from a famine, as well as his family who relocates to Egypt uh, during that distress. But they're stuck there for 430 years, and this is exactly what God told them would be the case all the way back uh, in his covenant he made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. But as Joseph dies and his memory of Joseph fades, the Israelites end up being put into slavery by the Egyptians. And more and more as they multiplied and increased, they were seen as a threat. So if you remember the story, Pharaoh launches the final solution where he's going to have his minions go out and drown all the male Israelite babies. But God raises up Moses, the deliverer. And as his story unfolds over the course of 40 years and then 80 years, he is the one who goes to Pharaoh and says, the Lord says, let my people go that they may worship and serve me. And if you remember, Pharaoh's response was, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And then we get plague after plague after plague, which Iron has done such a great job talking about last week and the, and the week before. And Pharaoh constantly waffles and changes his mind. Let him go, not let him go, let him go, not let him go, until finally he's brought to his knees and the Israelites are allowed to leave. And that's where we're picking up the story here this morning. And what we're looking at 
is a story that is foundational for the history of God's people. The crossing of the Red Sea. And this story has made some, such an impact on human history. DreamWorks makes a movie about it. Bob Marley writes a song about it, right? This is a big deal in the story of God's people. And we need to, we need to be clear up front what this story is not. This isn't just a morality tale. You can't reduce the message of the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea to trust God when you're in a tight spot. Or, um, you know, when times are tough, remember to be still. I mean, those are good things to do, don't get me wrong, but that's not what this story adds up to. Nor is it legitimizing our tendency to label our bad hair day as oppression and someone we don't like is our personal Pharaoh who God is going to bring down. That's not what this story is here for. And this story isn't just a cool miracle story. We're like, neat, how cool, and then we move on with our lives. This story is a salvation story. And it becomes a model or a paradigm by which we can understand God's saving action. God saved his people when there was nothing they could do to save themselves. And the Old Testament will return to this theme again and again and again, just like the new. And this story is an answer to the question, who is the Lord? He is a redeemer. He is a deliverer. He is the God who saves his people. Now, this story is a story about God and his glory. If you notice two times in this text, we're told that God is acting to get glory over Pharaoh. And so that the Egyptians shall know that he is the Lord. That's once in verse 4 and then again in verses 17 through 18. Quite a big deal. Now, those of you who have taken a religion 101 class might be aware that some have tried to minimize this event by pointing out that the Hebrew for Red Sea is actually Sea of Reeds. The, the Hebrew word is Yom Suf, and Suf sometimes refers to papyrus. It, it does so in chapter 2, verse 3. And papyrus doesn't grow in the deep waters of the Red Sea. Papyrus grows in the marshy lands of Egypt. So it's not that big of a deal that they cross through some marshy lands. Now, there's a story that I've heard over and over again uh, and found in a number of different sources about a theologically liberal minister who once preached, preached in a socioeconomically depressed church. And he made mention of this story in his sermon, and a congregant shouted out, uh, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! God is almighty. He rescued the Israelites, brought them through those deep waters. And the preacher felt sorry for this man. How uneducated he was. Told him it wasn't the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea, a marshland of only six inches of water. And the congregant shouted out, Hallelujah! Praise the Lord! God is Almighty! He drowned the whole Egyptian army in just six inches of water. <laughs> now, you can have a lot of fun reading arguments about this and going back and forth. I sure did. Uh, some have pointed out that uh, Yom Suf may be more likely means Sea of the End, and it's just referring to the Red Sea, which is at the southern border at the end of Egypt. Uh, 
Recent scholarship like James Hoffmeyer has pointed out uh, that the details fit what we now know as the Bitter Lakes on the southeast of the Nile Delta. And 3,000 years ago when water levels were higher, it was connected to the Red Sea by the Gulf of Suez, which would simply mean that the Reed Sea was the Red Sea during that day. But here's one that we should miss, is that Yam Suf does refer to the Red Sea in other places in the Bible. The best arguments got to account for all the details. So if you want to talk more about that, we can talk offline. But if you want to truly get the story of the Red Sea rescue, you need to understand this. Christianity is not first and foremost about trying. Trying is a part of Christianity, don't get me wrong. But Christianity is not first and foremost about trying. Christianity first and foremost is about being rescued. Rescued by God. And that leads to a whole different way of trying. In fact, it leads to a whole new way of life. Now, if you're um, someone who's tempted to say, All religions are basically the same, and it's arrogant to say otherwise. Then I just want to ask you, would you listen to this story? Because if you're not willing to listen to the story, you may miss that Christianity is very different, and it might actually be arrogance that keeps you from listening. This story that we're looking at this morning is part of a larger story that is unfolding. God is rescuing a people. He's going to lead them to Mount Sinai and set them apart for holiness. And through them, his intention is to bring blessing to the whole earth. As one scholar named Christopher Wright put it, redemption is meant to lead to sanctification, holiness. And sanctification is intended to lead to mission. And all of it is for God's glory. So I want to look at three things about God's glory that we see in this text this morning. We need to see that God's glory is displayed in the face of the helplessness of his people. And God's glory is displayed in the midst of the fickleness of his people. And God's glory is displayed ultimately in the salvation of his people. Got it? All right, let's start with the first one. We see God's glory displayed in the face of of the helplessness of his people. And here I'm looking at verses 1 through 9. Uh, there's an unexpected plot twist here that's easy to miss. And if we're dipping back into chapter 13 and then we're looking at the details of the first couple of verses, uh, here's what we will notice is that God is actually leading his people the long way home. You think they've been released from Egypt and now they're just going to go straight to the promised land. But instead of heading north along the coastal highway, which was the most obvious escape route, it was the most direct route, it was the shortest, God takes them south into the wilderness. And that's very odd. The places in verse 2 are hard to locate in terms of their modern counterparts, but we know they're somewhere on the eastern border of Egypt. But what's obvious is that God has the Israelites set up camp right by the sea. A very vulnerable place. And you add to this the developing situation that we read about in verses 5 through 9. That Pharaoh and his minions are starting to have second thoughts again. What have we done? We just let these losers go. They were cheap labor in our kingdom. And they're also going to laugh at us now. 
we're, we're going to mobilize a massive military operation to either recover them and bring them back or to annihilate them. And Pharaoh and his army, are, they're armed with the most advanced military technology of the day, the chariot. Now, if, if you want to get a sense for what that must have felt like, I want you to imagine all the people of uh, Silicon Valley, right, in Half Moon Bay, backs against the sea, and you have Black Hawk helicopters and tanks coming at you, right, full force. It's a terrifying experience. And this is the thing, the Israelites have been led by God right to this vulnerable place. Surrounded by desert, backs against the sea, sitting ducks for Pharaoh and his minions. God is the one who led them there. I mean, this feels like a hopeless and helpless situation. There's no real escape route. One scholar uh, describes it like this. He's like, this is the perplexing providence of God. Or as Admiral Akbar in Star Wars says, it's a trap. <laughs> but it's all a setup. It's all a setup for God to put his power on display. In the midst of the helplessness of his people, the glory of God's power is going to be seen. You see, it is a trap, but not for Israel. It is a trap for Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. Now, I think this helps us understand the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in verse 4. And the hardening of the Egyptians' heart a little bit later. Uh, Iron did a great job talking about this. That this phrase, hardening of heart, it shows up 20 times in the book of Exodus. 10 times, Pharaoh does it to himself. He hardens his own heart. 10 times, God does it to Pharaoh. And this is the thing you have to understand. God isn't changing Pharaoh's character. He's confirming it. In fact, he's giving him the courage to live out his character. Now, the esteemed uh, right reverend Bob Crossland, who some of you may remember who used to be on staff here, puts it like this. Hardening ensures that Pharaoh doesn't escape justice for his murderous reign. And it clarifies the true story, no spin zone, no fake news, that Pharaoh is actually magnanimous and wanted to let Israel go all along. He's actually a kind and generous slave master. Or as another scholar put it, God induces Pharaoh to move his king into checkmate, and he doesn't even realize it. What is this telling God's people? It's telling God's people, God's got this. It's in his hands He's luring Pharaoh to his defeat. It's all going according to God's design. You see, God saved his people when there was nothing they could do to save themselves. The helplessness of God's people is actually the stage on which you see the glory of God's power. And friends, that's something that we have to take to heart, is that his glory shines the brightest in the midst of our helplessness. God displays the glory of his power in the face of the helplessness of his people. That's the first thing that we need to say. see. Here's the second thing. We see God's glory displayed in the midst of the fickleness of his people. If you look at verses 10 through 14, what you see is that Israel fell apart when they saw Pharaoh's army approaching. And uh, we're given some details here that we should pay attention to. First, we see that panic sets in. This is the end of verse 10. They're terrified, and they begin to cry out to the Lord. 
And that's not necessarily the cry of faith. It's a cry of distress. They're hitting the panic button, right? They're flipping out. And then we see that they begin to uncork the cynicism that's in their hearts. Verse 11, were there not enough graves in Egypt? Did you have to bring us out here to die? Which is um, sarcastic because Egypt, if it was known for anything, was known for its burial practices. And uh, we have the ancient tombs called the pyramids, right? And just so you know, sarcasm wasn't invented by millennials or hipsters, right? God's people have a long history of it. And then finally we see they start lashing out at Moses, verse 12. Didn't we tell you we would rather have stayed slaves in Egypt? Why didn't you just leave us alone? Some of us were opposed to this from the start. I mean, this is a big fat We told you so. Israel is throwing an absolute temper tantrum. Now, if any of this feels familiar, it's because we do this too in our own distress. We panic. We get cynical and suspicious and sarcastic. And we start lashing out. It's a condition of the human heart. And I'm not going to spend more time on this because this is just the first installment of the grumbling theme we're going to see again and again throughout Israel's wilderness journey. But here Moses interrupts their kvetching in verses 13 and 14. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. And by the way, that's a bit of a tame translation because you could read it with like, they're there, but it's like Moses is like, stand still and shut up. God's about to do something. And you got to see this. You're not going to see these Egyptians again because you're going to see the salvation of the Lord. Even though you're falling apart, God is still going to do what he has purposed to do. He won't back away. He won't back down from his promises. Because in the midst of the fickleness of God's people, we see the glory of God's faithfulness. You know, it's understandable that the Israelites were afraid. This is a scary moment. And God never wants us to pretend that scary moments aren't scary. But what he wants from us is for us to trust him. And at this moment in Israel's history, the Israelites had two anchors for their wavering faith to attach to. The first was God's promise. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, when he made that great promise in Genesis 12 to Abraham. And it was highlighted in chapter 2, verse 24 of the book of Exodus. Do you remember? And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. They could hold on to the promise. But not just that. They also had another anchor, and that is God's track record. I mean, this is coming off the heels of the story of the plagues in chapters 5 through 11. The Lord beat the bits out of the gods of Egypt. And he brought one of the greatest nations on earth at the time to its knees. God's covenant promise and God's track record should have generated trust in God's people. But they wavered 
just like us. One person put it, puts it this way, no matter how much we have experienced God's power and care for us, an entirely new experience leaves us with the uncomfortable feeling, can God really cope with this situation? And in that moment, you can choose to view God in light of your circumstances. Or you can choose to view your circumstances in light of who God is. But you know what the best part of this is? God still delivers them in all their fickleness and wavering. The exodus wasn't canceled due to lack of faith. It was like, sorry guys, <laughs> show's off. We're not doing this anymore, you know. And I'm not saying faith doesn't matter. It's just that not all God's gifts wait for the proper response before being received. It is a humbling truth, but it is an incredibly encouraging one, isn't it? God delivers the weak and the wavering, and that is glorious. He delivers Israel not because they deserve it, but because he has a promise to keep, and he is a promise-keeping God. God reveals the glory of his faithfulness in the midst of the fickleness of his people. That's the second thing. So God, God displays his glory in the midst of the helplessness of his people. And God displays his glory in the face of the fickleness of his people. But the third thing is we see God's glory displayed in the salvation of his people. If you look at verses 16 and to the rest of the chapter, verses 16 through 18 are like a warm-up. God gives a concise summary to Moses of what he's about to do. And he tells Moses why he's going to do it. So that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord and that he's going to get glory over Pharaoh. And this has been, this has been one of the main storylines the whole time, right? Who's really powerful here? Is it Pharaoh and his gods or is it the God of Moses, the God of Israel? And God demonstrates his glory in this final showdown. Egypt will bother them no more after this. And notice, verses 19 through 20, God gives a special provision to his people. The pillar of cloud moving behind them, separating them from the Egyptians. We've seen this before, we'll see it again. It represents the intimacy and the intensity of God's presence with his people. Guiding them, but also protecting them. And then in verse 21 through 29, we see how it goes down. God causes a strong east wind to blow all night, building walls of water around them. Why? So there's no flanking possible. And notice, God is using features of creation in service of his redemption. The Egyptian army is lured in to pursuing. And then God throws them into a panic. Their chariot wheels get all clogged up. And then the sea refluxes and collapses in on them. And it says the Israelites finally see the salvation that was promised to them. The Egyptian army dead washed up on the seashore. Now you have to remember, Pharaoh and his soldiers were unbearably cruel. These were people who drowned babies. And they had a legacy of savagery and brutality and merciless oppression. For Israel to be rescued, her enemies had to be decimated. And that is exactly what God did out of love for his people, and out of faithfulness to his promise. 
How did they respond to his love and salvation? Well, here's a high point for Israel in this story. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. It's an important development in the story. They've been delivered from slavery to Pharaoh, not to go about doing their own thing, but to move towards worshiping and serving Yahweh and living a whole new life as God's people. That's the structure of salvation, right? Redemption leads to sanctification, and sanctification is supposed to lead to mission. The glory of God revealed in his salvation is meant to capture our hearts and reorient our lives. God rescued Israel at the Red Sea. He's going to bring her to Sinai and call her to holiness. And he's going to do that so she can be a light and blessing to the nations. That's the structure of salvation. And it all begins with his rescue. This moment is the moment that makes Israel into a people. It's identity forming. And it's foundational. So it comes as no surprise that it becomes the model of salvation throughout the Old Testament. It's returned to again and again. You can go into the book of Joshua, and there's kind of a repeat of this moment when they cross the Jordan. And God says, as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you, Joshua. As I was with the people then, I'm going to be with the people now. And he says, I'm doing all this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that I am the Lord. When you read the Psalms, they return to this theme again and again, marveling at, celebrating God's great deliverance. And then using that for encouragement in their moments of distress. When you get to the prophets, and Israel is in exile for her unfaithfulness. You get places like Isaiah 43 that is saying God is going to bring you out despite your forgetfulness of him. As if God is saying, I've done it before and I can do it again. But what we see as the story continues on is the people of God failed to live up to their calling again and again and again. And it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer that we need a greater rescue than a Red Sea crossing. We need someone who can break the power of sin and death. And then one day he shows up. Jesus, Son of God and Messiah, a perfectly faithful Israelite. And he comes to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And did you notice that Exodus themes show up all throughout the New Testament? I mean, I could spend hours and hours on this. But in Luke chapter 9, to give one example, Jesus takes three of his disciples up onto the mount and he's transfigured. They see a glimpse of his glory unveiled. And then Moses and Elijah appear and they're talking about the significance of his coming death. And you know what they call it? An exodus. He's greater than Moses, leading God's people into a new mode of existence, delivering them from a far deeper slavery. You get to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, right? We see that it is through Christ, the greater than Moses, that the church, the renewed Israel, gain entrance into the new heavens and the new earth, greater than the promised land. And he delivers from someone more oppressive than Pharaoh, Satan, and from a bondage more seriously, serious than Egyptian slavery, bondage to sin and death. And then we get this strange remark of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, where he likens Christian baptism to the crossing of the Red Sea. 
He says, what happened to the Israelites at the sea is that they were born again into a new people. And that's what happens to you as you pass through the waters of baptism. You leave the old way of life behind and you enter the new. See, the significance of this story doesn't first lie in what it tells us to do. It lies first in what it tells us about what God has done. And that impacts everything we do. Let me draw it to a close like this. Israel, at this stage in its life, right, it came into existence because of the crossing of the Red Sea. Passed through the waters, reborn into a new life, now belonging to God. Which is why over and over again in the Old Testament, they looked back on this miracle as their defining moment. But if you're a Christian, you have a defining moment to look back on as well. A greater moment. When God did something far more spectacular than parting the sea and drowning the Egyptian army. Because on the cross and at his resurrection, Jesus defeated sin. And he parted death. So that now all who are united to him by faith are alive and free and belong to him. The structure of salvation remains. His death and resurrection is our rescue. By his spirit, he makes us holy. And this makes us a people who are to go out into the world to live as light in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which is what our baptism calls us to. It's a new beginning. But you know what? you got to learn how to live out this new identity of belonging to God. You remember the movie Shawshank Redemption? It's that movie that anytime it's on television... And you see it, you have to sit down and watch it. Like, no matter where you are in the film, you're like, I guess the next 50 minutes is taken up of my life because Shawshank Redemption is on. It just draws you right in. And if you remember that scene where Andy Dufresne and Red, played by Morgan Freeman, uh, are, are, are talking with the boys about an older in- inmate named Brooks. Brooks was about to be released, and Brooks snapped, and he tries to commit a crime inside the prison. Uh, because he doesn't want to get out. And uh, Andy and Red are talking about this, and Red says he's been institutionalized. Everybody's like, why are you using these big words? What does that even mean? And then I'm not going to try to imitate Morgan Freeman's voice, but just imagine it with his cadence. He says, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. After long enough, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. Friends, we have a tendency to return to old ways of behaving, old ways of coping. Learn behaviors of using substances to try to ease the pain or escaping into distraction or stewing in bitterness and anger. But the question that comes to us again and again is this, how are you going to respond to his saving love? Will you trust him when he asks hard things of you? Things that might feel impossible? Will you view God in light of your circumstances? Or will you view your circumstances in light of who God is? The story of the Red Sea crossing is a challenge to live like a rescued people. To fear the Lord and trust Him. And to face our enemies and all our circumstances by remembering His great rescue and in light of His great love. God's great rescue is a resurrection rescue. And that's why Paul, when he's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, describes his experience of being burdened beyond his strength 
And he says, but this happened that I might rely on the God who raises the dead. Put your hope in the God of resurrection, the God of the impossible. God displays his glory in the face of the helplessness and the fickleness of his people by saving us when there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. Who is the Lord? He is a redeemer. He is a deliverer. He is the God who saves. Trust him. Live like a rescued people. Let's pray together. God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the saving God. You are the rescuing God. You're the God who delivers. And you have won the battle, the battle over sin and death, the battle that matters so much more than our little battles. We pray that you would cultivate and generate trust in our hearts, that we might be a people who learn to live a whole new way of life as sons and daughters of the King of the universe and as witnesses to the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection from the dead. We need you to do this by your spirit in our hearts. We need our stories to be caught up in your big story, your salvation story. We ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.